This is the Rebel HR Podcast. If you're a professional looking for innovative, thought-provoking information in the world of human resources, this is the right podcast for you. Rebel on, HR Rebels. All right, Rebel HR listeners, super excited for our guest this week. We've got a couple of wonderful guests. I have been tearing through their new book. Uh, it's called Unfear, Transform Your Organization to Create Breakthrough Performance and Crossed Off Or, Employee Wellbeing. Uh, with us today, we've got Mark Manukas and Gaurav Bhatnagar, uh, and we are also joined by Molly Burdess. Uh, so super excited for the conversation today. Uh, Mark and Gaurav are the uh, co-founders of Co-Creation Partners. Um, Gaurav has dedicated more than two decades to helping companies thrive and achieve breakthrough performance. Uh, since founding Co-Creation Partners in 2010, he has designed and led programs and workshops for a number of different clients across multiple sectors, uh, names such as uh, Procter & Gamble, Pepsi-Cola, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, Mark is uh, an engineer by training. Uh, we're going to get along just fine. I work with a lot of engineers and uh, began his career as a Navy officer and a member of the U.S. Naval Construction Battalion, also known as the Seabees. Uh, and he brought his experience and insights into the performance of engineered systems to McKinsey, where he was a consultant and has also worked with a number of different industries and uh, wonderful companies. Welcome to the uh, show this week, guys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Well, super excited for the conversation. Uh, and uh, before we hit record here, I was just uh, just commenting that uh, I've got a copy of this book, Unfear. And you know, I get a lot of books uh, it, in in my role as a as a podcaster. But uh, this is one of those that I, I started reading through it, and it was just like, oh, that's good stuff. Oh, that's good stuff. So, um, so thank you for writing the book, and I encourage our listeners to to check it out. But um, why don't we just start with what what prompted you to write a book about fear? We wanted to convey to the world what uh, we saw as a primary source of waste and dysfunction in organizations. So, our our company, Co Creation Partners, we help organizations improve their performance um, and employee well-being. And fear always sat at the, the heart of what we worked on with clients. And it's often, you know, it's a, an element in an organization that people, um, you know, don't fully acknowledge or don't really see. And so we wanted to create a book that helped people see what was really going on in their organization with respect to fear and what they could do about it. What would you say, Gorf? Uh, yeah, so... All of that, but the other thing I would say is that I am a recovering fear addict, and and so so writing a book about the stuff that I'm recovering from made sense. I think I've written this book in my head about twenty times before I actually got down to writing it with Mark during the pandemic. Um, so it's been a long time coming. Elaborate on that a little bit more. So you've, you've found that fear holds people back. Fear of what? Is, is there one or two things or, or what does that look like? Sure. Um, well, um, so then, you know, I, it's interesting. Because the one thing I'll tell you is that I haven't met a single human being who doesn't have fear. Now, there's some common patterns. Uh, the top three or four that I often run across in organizations is fear of failure. The second one, which is especially true for senior people in organizations and CEOs, 
is fear of being an imposter and fear of being found out. Um, the third one is the fear of not being appreciated or validated. And the last one is the fear of being disliked. Those are often the four which I find to be the most common. There are many, many more, but those are the ones that are quite typical. Well, I was just going to say, I was at a seminar yesterday, actually, and one of the speakers was talking about imposter syndrome. And I learned that that coin, or that was, that phrase, I guess, really came out in the 70s, 1970s. It's been around for that long. Um, and I think it's a real thing. Um, and, and, you know, the speakers, like, why are we still talking about this? Um, and it is, it's because of a fear. It's real. So I just found that really interesting. Yeah, and the important idea we want to get across in the book as well is that fear itself is not the problem. And we all have these fears. And it's more about changing the story we hold about the fears that we have. So we'll still experience fear as human beings. That's just that's a natural thing. But if we can shift how we relate to those fears, that's where you know people have those breakthroughs and can be more effective. And I think that's important for HR professionals as well, because I think there's a tendency to say, look, fear is bad. Let's figure out how we almost eliminate it or, you know, suppress it. And so that creates its own dysfunction. And, and, you know, we think there's a false dichotomy between using fear and suppressing fear. It's really doing something completely different. When Molly, Patrick, and I started to figure out how to start our own podcast, we didn't know where to start. Thankfully, we found Buzzsprout. Buzzsprout makes it super easy for us to upload our episodes, track our listeners, and get listed on all the major podcast networks. Today's a great day to start your own podcast. I know that you're one of our listeners, so you've definitely got something to say. Whether you're looking for a new marketing channel, have a message you want to share with the world, or just think it would be fun to have your own talk show, podcasting is an easy, inexpensive, and fun way to expand your reach online. Buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to launch, promote, and track your podcast. Your show can be online and listed in all the major podcast directories within minutes of finishing your recording. Podcasting isn't that hard when you have the right partners. and The team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. And now, for listeners of Rebel HR, you can get a $20 Amazon gift card sent to you from Buzzsprout by clicking in the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. Point. And, and one of the things that I think is so powerful in this content is, is the fact that we can all relate to this. Um, and so, so Gaurav, I really appreciated um, throughout the book, you used personal examples and you were, you were really kind of, you know, honestly pretty vulnerable. Um, and I, I, and I, as I reflect on that and the, and the comment that you called yourself a fear addict, um, obviously you overcame that in some way because you were, because you were able to be vulnerable in a book that's going to go out to thousands and thousands of readers around the, around the world. So, so what tactics did you use to, first of all, to just kind of identify, Oh, you know, I've got an issue with this and then figure out how do I actually overcome uh, some of these, these challenges? Yeah, so that's a brilliant question because I thought fear was a good thing. That the fact that I felt fear was a great thing because it it galvanized me into doing things. And uh, 
this is this is a long time ago. So uh, this was 2002, and uh, I was sitting in a workshop which I did not want to be in. Uh, it, was, it was being run by this British woman who had called called herself Geeta Bellin, and Geeta is an Indian name. And I used to tell everyone she's a fraud, and, and because her real name is Margaret, and she's just taken an Indian name to convince us. And I'm Indian, so you know I'm allowed to say that. Um, and and. As I was in that workshop, what I realized was that I was in a pattern where I was so caught up with success that I had lost my connection to joy. And this lady helped me understand that. And when she opened that gap, it forced me to really, really reflect on all the things that, all the stories that I had created in my head about, about success and the fear of failure that was holding me, holding me in a very, very dysfunctional pattern. And, and the fact that I was able to then reframe all of that through the help of many, many people after that, it just felt that it was, it would be intellectually dishonest not to share that journey and to make it about everyone else when ultimately, you know, I am just like anyone else. So admitting to that fear, you had that self-realization. How We have a lot of people walk into our office in HR, um, and a lot of people don't have how do we help them get to that moment that you got to? How do we help them realize that, hey, fear is the issue or this is a fear? Yeah, so so this is a great question. So I think for most people who are not ready to engage in a conversation about fear, you don't start with a conversation about fear. You start with a conversation about behavior. And what you do is you help them understand that behavior is not something that just happens because most of the time people think, oh, I have a behavior, someone will tell me another behavior, and I'll go to that new behavior. But my experience is that you know you do that and then stress happens and you ping right back to your old behavior. So the conversation that we lead, lead people through to help them understand the fear is we actually have them understand a whole process of what are the stories, what are the thoughts and feelings, what are the belief systems that are driving that behavior. And as you go through that, it always leads to our inherent unmet needs and our fears. So you get people to that point through them understanding themselves rather than starting with fear. Because fear is a taboo topic in organizations, right? I mean, it's amazing how everyone talks about how there's fear, but when you go into the corporate boardroom, oh, no, 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 our organization is no fear. And I, I never had fear. To be, to be fearful or to have fears is to be, to be a weak leader is often what happens. So you can't directly engage in that conversation. You know, I'm thinking through my own organization and I'm, I'm in sales. So I see this all the time. Right. Um, and it, it, people have heard me say this before, but it drives me crazy when a leader comes to me and says, all of our people just suck. They're low performers. They don't want to do the job. They just won't do it. Um, and as I was hearing, you know, you guys talk about this, I do, I think that most of the people it comes back to, they are fearful of something. So if we change that conversation, I think it could be so impactful. 
That, that's so true. And Mark, I'm sure you have yeah. a perspective on that. But what I what I believe is most people don't come to come to work with an intention to underperform. Right? They don't come to work to say, I'm just going to collect my paycheck and screw everything else. Most people have good intentions, but they have stories which hold them back. And then they get reinforced in the organization through these archetypes, which are either aggressive, defensive, or passive, defensive, that then makes them become suboptimal. And then it becomes completely embedded. And, and then, then, then people say there's no way out. And they, they start asserting it as if it's the truth. Yeah, and just to build on that, I, there's, you know, Gore mentioned the aggressive, defensive, passive, defensive um, sort of patterns. There are some people who, driven by fear, actually work themselves to burnout. You know, those are people who are super competitive, perhaps they're perfectionistic. Um, you know, so that's one one general pattern. The other are maybe those people who just don't really show up. They just keep their head down and they're just they're just trying really hard to not make any mistakes. So that's sort of the other pattern. So you see both, but they're both signs that there's some underlying fear that's driving that dysfunction. You know, it's it's really interesting because um, you know, and I'm reflecting on, you know, my organization. So we're manufacturing um, uh, organization, definitely some machismo in the, uh, in the leadership ranks, you know, and, and like, you know, admitting that you're, you're afraid or that you, or that fear is, is interacting with your decision-making process would be, would, it would be very, um, very surprising if that were to occur. I think now we have a great leadership team and I think we have some very intellectually and emotionally, uh, intellectual people, but, um, you know, they're not going to come out and be like, oh yeah, I'm really terrified of this. <laughs> but I think, you know, what, what was so interesting in that, and I'm just reflecting on, on myself is, you know, I can, but I can absolutely, uh, relate to the, to the fear of failure or the fear of looking like an idiot, you know, or, or the, you know, the fear of, of losing my job. Cause I just completely screwed up a project and, you know, the moments, you know, I, I remember distinct moments in my career where I've just, I've, I've been driven to inaction because I, because in, you know, and it really is kind of, now that I think about it in this context, it's almost like being petrified because of that fear response, as opposed to, you know, working, working through that. And Molly, it was funny when you mentioned the people coming into my office, it's, you know, I, I don't know if it's as much for me about, um, about somebody else working through their fear, a lot of it comes back to me and, and, you know, you get that pit, you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach when someone comes walking in that door and it really is, it's a fear of what's coming in next. Right. And you don't know, especially in HR, sometimes, sometimes this stuff is, you can't, you couldn't write a book about it. <laughs> so, so as, as we cope through that kind of personally, I kind of reflect on that and in, in, in our, in our world, you know, how, how as an individual, uh, can I, can I be aware of that and kind of work through that when I get those feelings, the kind of like the cortisol coursing through my veins and, and then, and then how do I, how do I find mechanisms to cope with that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, we kind of describe a, a learning process that starts with awareness and then moves to choice in, in practice. So step one is just helping people become aware of where and how they feel fear. You know, even just the somatic, you know, you know, markers of, of where, where that fear shows up 
in your body. So it's just noticing it and not necessarily judging it. And it's also getting people to become more aware of how their current responses to fear are serving them and helping them and also where it's not helping them be effective, right? Most of the responses that we have have served us in some way at some point in life, but we've kind of forgotten to question those patterns and that conditioning. And so we bring those patterns into the present moment and it may not actually allow us to be effective. So Kyle, you're mentioning a you know situation where you know maybe you're holding back and not sharing something. Maybe that served you well in the past, but maybe it's not you know particularly effective at this point. And so getting people to just realize that, go through that thought process, so they can make more active choices to be more effective. Uh, and then practicing that, you know, it takes practice. It's not you know there's no quick fix there necessarily. Awareness and choice are the start of it, but you really have to practice stepping out of your comfort zone and and working into these new patterns of behavior. Yeah, and we talk about in the book uh, that fear, so, you know, in our brain, a lot of our decisions are emotional decisions that we post-rationalize, right? And the emotional brain has two parts, the, the pain complex and the pleasure complex. And the pain complex is like Velcro, so it sticks to us, while the pleasure complex is like Teflon, so you get a high and you forget it. That's why my wife still remembers the one time I forgot her birthday, even though I tell her I love you every day, right? <laughs> but but it's exactly. but 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 that's that's the interesting thing, right? So so how do you get conscious of knowing that that thing is about to happen? And the other problem is we live in our heads, and this is about the first step is to get to learn to live in our body. <laughs> Nowhere in our body do we feel it, and then deliberately create a point of choice but that's just a short-term thing because the next time it happens it'll happen again so the other thing we talk about and people think it's pretty woo-woo but it isn't is we also recommend meditation as a practice and the reason why we recommend meditation as a practice is because over time what meditation allows us to do is that it allows us to clean up those uh, those uh, those velcro things that that are reference points for our fear and if you don't clean up those reference points there's nothing transformational that happens in terms of your your relationship to fear so there's a short term thing which is in the moment what do you do but there's a longer term thing as well which is how do you engage in practices that allow you to cleanse your system of your of your patterns of connections that you have built over many years. I know a lot of people who think meditation is is great for the mind, body, soul, all of that stuff. Um, and when I first started, you know, hearing these things in my head, I just pictured, okay, I'm going to lay on the floor for an hour, quiet. Like, who has time for that? Um, but I don't think that's what meditation is or has to be. Am, am I right? Am I wrong? Yeah, so I don't know if meditation is lying on the floor for half an hour, but the fundamentals of meditation are twofold. Fundamentals of meditation are the ability to observe while you're in the act of doing something, right? So the most simplest form of meditation is to notice your breathing. When you have your thoughts, notice your thoughts. So why is that so important? The reason why that's so important is because meditation actually gives you the practice of understanding that you're not just an actor in your in your life story, in your organizational story, you're also the director of your life story, 
because you can observe yourself in, in that moment. And when you're a director, you can shift things. If you're just an actor, then you are, you know, when I started my life, my career, my journey, it was, I used to say, I'm an angry kind of person. That's just the way I am. And if you don't want to get into a bad situation with me, just don't hang out with me when I'm angry because that's who I am. And what this work has taught me, meditation has taught me, is that I'm bigger than my anger because I can observe it. And from there, I can shift it. And to be both the director and actor is such an important idea. And it is that is the core of meditation, if you really think about it. To be meditative in everything you do is the intention rather than to meditate and just lie down. <laughs> yeah, and I know a lot of people, <laughs> I know a lot of people, myself included, uh, for a period of time are very skeptical of, of meditation. It seems like one of those woo-woo things, like I don't need to do that stuff. Like I, you know, I'm effective enough already and that's just kind of a, a soft, touchy-feely thing to do. Um, but I personally, over time, have come to appreciate that it doesn't have to be this weird woo-woo thing. It really is uh, this process of becoming more aware of everything that's happening, whether it's changing body sensations and your emotions and your, your thought processes and just not being so lost in thought. And it just gives you a lot more um, flexibility about how you can show up in any given moment uh, to be effective. You're not so fused with your emotion and your thoughts. You can step back, like Gore mentioned, and be more of that observer. It's just, it's a more powerful way to live life. You know, if you're nervous in a meeting, like a podcast meeting, you can sort of notice that and how it's showing up in your body and, you know, just shift your breath a little bit and how you're, um, how you're sitting. And it just allows you to, to shift in the moment. So that's something I've, I've discovered over time. It's, it's, it's really interesting. And, and I am, I probably should be, but I, I'm, I'm not a meditation practicer. Um, and, and I think part of it's just because, yeah, I just, I, I don't know enough about it, but it's interesting that, you know, you'll consistently hear that feedback from, uh, from experts who have studied, you know, the brain and emotional responses and, you know, a, a great example of an unhealthy approach to, <laughs> to this. And now as I, you know, after I read the book and as I'm reflecting on the conversation here, it was really a fear response. But, you know, earlier in my career, I used to, as opposed to approach conflict or, you know, my fear of what might be walking through my door in a healthy way, I would flip a switch in my brain and become like an emotionless jerk because then I wouldn't have to deal with it, right? I wouldn't have to take on the emotional burden of somebody else's problems or, or having to terminate somebody's employment or something along those lines, you know, the, the unfun part uh, of human resources. But eventually I did have to figure out, okay, how do I cope with this and retain my humanity um, through the course of my, you know, essential job functions? Um, otherwise I'm gonna have a mental break Right. And so I think that goes to, you know, the burnout and, and um, it wasn't meditation, but it was it was I would say it was community and it was getting connected with with wonderful professionals like Molly and like minded folks that that helped me understand I wasn't alone. And kind of building that community for me was the uh, the 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 antidote for that. Yeah. And Kyle, that's meditation, too. When you engage in deep, reflective conversations with other people with intentionality, that is meditative, being meditative as well. Yeah, and that story resonates with my life experience as well, Kyle, because, you know, growing up, um, you know, 
and being trained as an engineer and being in the Navy, you know, I was sort of taught that to be a man in the world, you have to suppress your emotions. You know, anger is an okay emotion, but pretty much any other emotion is, is suspect. It means you're not effective. Um, but there's a, there's a cost to that. And, you know, carrying all the stress, you know, and had the Velcro that Gore mentioned, you know, that's still there, but it just, it sort of sits inside and that it sort of eats you from the inside out. And so I've learned over time that I can actually, you know, be okay with my emotions and share those emotions and be vulnerable. And it doesn't mean I'm not effective. Um, and I can still, you know, be who I am, but just be it in a, a way that's, um, yeah, more open. And yeah, sometimes I think with fear, you just have to do it to overcome it. Otherwise, you have so much buildup in your head. For me, it used to be like hard conversation. I just had this internal fear of, oh my gosh, what if I don't do this right? What if it doesn't go well? What if I don't say the right things? What if I offend this person? What if I make it worse? Um, and it was just creating more conflict. And then you know, once you start having those hard conversations, it's like an instant weight off your shoulder. And it's like, okay, that wasn't so bad. I can do this. Sure. And Molly, one, one thing I would tell you is that um, when we get into that fear pattern with the hard conversations, then we get into a very unique pattern, which is I need to be right. I need to be right. Because if I'm not right, something bad is going to happen. And what a lot of my work with leaders is about is being right is not the same thing as being effective. And when we get into the right mode, then we get into a right and wrong mode and we make other people wrong. And the job of leadership is actually to inspire and build followership. And the more you, you make people wrong by being right, you actually end up being more ineffective rather than effective. Yeah. And I imagine that just creates like this defensive, toxic culture. Yeah, it's such a good conversation, and um, it and you know I've I've taken away so much. One thing I do want to talk about that that was was a, definitely a light bulb moment for me as I was reading through the book was the fear archetypes, and you know there, there's I mean this is scientifically backed. Um, you know I I love the fact that you know it ties back to validated <laughs> peer reviewed studies, and and you know this isn't uh, this isn't like hey let's throw Let's throw some darts at a board and see what names sound good that we can, you know, put in here. So, <laughs> so and and what what really resonated with me was the difference between the fear archetypes and the and they're separated by the fight club and the nice club. And as I was reading through it, I'm like, oh, yep, I know one of those. I know one of those. I got one of those. Yep, we got one of those too. And it was just so funny that it it, it allowed me to kind of put that all into context. And then in in my seat, one of the biggest challenges is is working through organizational change, and and trying to get people aligned and and you know trying to manage through COVID when fifty percent of the United States feels one way and the other fifty percent feels another, and you know. You could you could go down the list over the last eighteen months the some of the turmoil that's been brought in the workplace. So, but can can we just maybe take a step back and and walk us through what some of those archetypes are and and you know how how fear plays into them. Yeah, we should first acknowledge that you know the archetypes are based on the work uh, from an organization called Human Synergistics. Um, international and the work of Dr. Robert Cook. Um, so we, you know, the archetypes um, 
very closely aligned to some of the survey tools that, that they use and that we use in a lot of our, our client work. Um, but there's two primary camps here to the, uh, the fear archetypes. One is the, the fight club. And the, the basic response there is, you know, people see threats and they try to stay safe by, um, by standing out and being special. And we can go through the, the four archetypes there. The second is the, the nice club and the way in which this group um, stays safe in the presence of threats is they keep their head down and they sort of hide. And so let's, you know, I can list these off real quick and we can jump in as, as needed. But within the fight club, you've got perfectionists. These are people that need to get everything right. Dot all the I's, cross all the T's. There's the competitors. So people who are ultra competitive and need to win at all costs. There's the controllers. These are people that need to be control and they tend to be very hierarchical. And the fault finders. These are the consultants of the world. You know, they're constantly finding fault and, you know, seeing problems everywhere, including with themselves and, you know, with other people. And so, you know, you can see that there's, you know, benefits and there's, you know, those archetypes or those patterns help people be effective in some ways, but they also have their, their downsides. Um, then on the nice club side, you've got the, uh, the likables. These are people who, you know, just try to be nice and, you know, minimize conflict. You've got the, uh, the sticklers. These are people who throw the rule book at you anytime there, something's going on. Um, that happens a little bit in the HR world uh, from what we've seen. Uh, you've got the minions. These are people who, you know, their only customer is their boss. And they're constantly trying to serve the, the hierarchy upwards. And then you have the avoiders. These are people who just, you know, shy away from conflict. And so, you know, we're often, you know, a mix of these archetypes at any given time and it changes by context. And we can shift these. These aren't like personality traits that are immutable. These are just patterns of, you know, behavior that we've come to adapt over time based on values that are actually quite important, but they've just become dysfunctional in some ways. And so we try to shine a light on that and help people understand how these patterns serve them, but how they don't serve them. Yeah, and another really interesting thing is that when you engage with the people who have the fight club archetypes, often they would say the reason why we are in the fight club is because if we don't use any one of those archetypes, all those nice club people are just going to just not do anything. And they are the reason why we are in the fight club. And then you talk to the people in the nice club and the nice club people say the reason why we just hide is because those guys are always fighting and screaming at us. So, so these two categories actually mutually, dysfunctionally reinforce each other. Yeah. And you bring up a really important point, Gaurav, and, you know, there's a question about, well, how do these relate to fear? It's, there's just a certain story, you know, the fears are essentially all the same, you know, fear of being an imposter, fear of not belonging, fear of failure. The same fears sit beneath all these archetypes. It's just different stories that we tell ourselves about the threats that we're experiencing lead to different you know patterns of behavior and so the the intervention point here isn't to get rid of your fear that's not realistic it's just to shift the story that we have about this threat so kyle if i ever find that that book on my desk that must be an intervention i'll know <laughs> i gotta i gotta change some of my behavior <laughs> yeah you know it's it's that's funny molly you know I, i'd be happy to give you the copy of the book but uh um you know, I, I think for me, as I was as I was reading on this and reflecting on this, you know, the context 
for me was was thinking about it and, and relating it to workplace interactions and and you know i think that um it, you know personally i can see i can see a little bit of all of those in me and but i've i've also you know reflected on my upbringing and as well as my kind of where I started my career and where I am now. And, and, you know, it was interesting to read through those and reflect and think, you know, a lot of these archetypes, um, you know, were helpful in the moment, like you said, Mark, where, you know, it, it worked for a period of time, but then I had to adapt and I had to change and it got uncomfortable. But had I not, I would have just been kind of stuck. And one of those for me is like, it's the, uh, it's, it's, it's wanting to be liked by others. You know, and I was raised, raised in a small town in Iowa, you know, you're, you know, when there's only 5,000 people in town, you got to be nice because everybody knows everybody. Right. You know, and so being liked is really, really important. Um, but, you know, obviously, if you overuse that, <laughs> especially in a, in a, you know, strategic human resources role, eventually the, the drive to be liked could actually set you up for some pretty serious failures. And, uh, and, and if, you're, if you're not balancing that, you know, that desire appropriately could be a really big pitfall. So I think just having that awareness and then, Molly, almost to your question earlier, you know, when someone comes in your office and they're interacting with you in a certain way, if you can, if you can tie that back to the archetype and kind of understand, okay, this is the perspective they're coming from. Now, how do I help them work through that in a way that doesn't, you know, jack up their cortisol anymore, but, but helps, helps us channel that into something that's actually productive. <laughs> that's for me, that was kind of one of the insights that I think, you know, that, that it, it's like a playbook, right? Like, okay, how do I, how do I play this one? <laughs> Yeah, and just I mean, just your reflection is kind of what we're hoping people get from the book is you know to see themselves in the archetype, not beat themselves over it, uh, you know, up about it, but just you know seeing how wow this may has, may have served me for a period of time, but it may be limiting limiting me in this particular moment. Um, so that's that's a great insight, Kyle, and I you know we can share some of ours as well from our own lives. Um, but I think if somebody does walk into your you know your office and you know they're displaying some of these behaviors. I think it's important to note that, you know, behind these behaviors are really good intentions. You know, so likables, you know, the, they value harmony and strong relationships and, uh, you know, having people get along. That's actually really good stuff. It's just maybe they're, the way in which they're expressing those values just isn't effective right now. And so just helping people see that may be enough to create a breakthrough. You know, I think the other thing that was really interesting, um, and I was reading, I, I was reading this book. The context here is, I had a really rough day. <laughs> I was, you know, and it was, it was a lot of conflict in the workplace. Um, and I tend to, I tend to kind of soak that up. I tend to, you know, that's just kind of part of. I think a lot of us in HR kind of, we, we kind of get those emotions stuck on us a little bit, right? Kind of like, kind of like we were talking earlier. Um, but thinking about that in the context of that person coming from a different uh, perspective than myself and, and thinking that they had to come from the fight club and, and be, uh, in this case, they were, they were uh, being fault finders. And, um, you know, that was a really good mindset shift. And then the other insight was, you know, in that nice club, a lot of these, a lot of these likables or minions or avoiders they're probably really top talent that's not tapped 
because mm-hmm. because they're just kind of they're just in this mode and we haven't drawn that out of them uh intentionally either right and so you know it was it was just kind of an interesting uh, it was an interesting read i was very emotional when i was reading this if you can tell and so it was it was it was a timely book to read <laughs> i'm so glad that that you found it useful so so i think you know one of the things that um you know that we we've talked about is is you know the book and um you know, I think one thing that that uh, I'd like to understand um, is is a little bit about kind of your personal journeys. Um, you know, and, and there's a lot of a lot of examples in the book, but you know, um, to go from the the McKinsey, you know, the, the the gold standard, and confront your fear and go and do something different, and kind of and 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 go through that journey. I'd just like to understand that path a little bit more because I think that'd be really valuable for our listeners. Yeah, my path, I mean, I, I guess I've taken an interesting path. I mean, I, I'm not the typical sort of person to be talking about fear and culture and organizations. You know, I've got an engineering background. Um, and so I was quite steeped in, you know, the technical aspects of creating stuff in the world and, and making it work. Um, but I'd say earlier in my career, I did study human factors in engineering. So I was, you know, early on taken in by this idea that, it's, you know, it's not enough to just have your mathematical equations be right. You have to get the human and organizational factors down in order to really create systems that work in the world and that are reliable. You know, if you study engineering failures um, anywhere, whether it's in oil and gas or, you know, construction, wherever, it's usually human and organizational factors that led to that failure, not poor engineering. So that was an idea that, that sat with me. Uh, from the Navy, I went to McKinsey & Company. I was really deep into, you know, the technical aspect of transforming organizations, but I was, you know, constantly feeling like we're missing something on the mindsets part. You know, we would talk about it. Um, I think there was good intention there, but I would come back to clients six to 12 months later and just see all of the brilliant ideas that, uh, you know, these gold standard um, consultants came up with and they just didn't stick. And, you know, at some point in my career, I, I crossed paths with Gaurav. He had started co-creation partners. I was still at McKinsey. And he was running some, you know, woo-woo workshops with meditation at one of the clients I was doing the hardcore, you know, sort of lean transformation at. And I was like, who's this joker, you know, (laughs) couldn't hack it at McKinsey. And uh, I need to go, you know, drop into this workshop to check in on him. But I I saw in that workshop, you know, just the impact, you know, the, the ideas had on me. And I was like, wow, this was the missing piece. You know, it's not enough just to have the technical piece. You really need to have the, the human dimension and, and the, you know, the way in which um, Gaurav was working with culture really, really stuck with me. So when I left McKinsey seven years ago, we partnered up and, you know, we try to bring both the human and technical dimensions together. And so that's kind of been my journey. I think it's been kind of a, a steady progression of getting deeper and deeper into this stuff, which may be a little bit different than Gaurav's story, which was, you know, this burst of insight. I sort of have little insights along the way. And I think both are, are quite valid. How about you, Gaurav? Yeah, listen, I'm the son of a physicist, and I I was a proud card-carrying member of the Fight Club. And for me, it was all about life is difficult, and you kick ass by overcoming that difficulty. Um, yeah, and I was I was a nightmare to be with, and. 
I ended up, you know, and I did, I did market research, right? So that's what my, I was a statistics guy. And I ended up just by chance in South Africa with my, with because, because the U.S. had just had its first dot-com bust in 2001 and I was looking for work and with Mickey, I was still in McKinsey and I moved to McKinsey, Johannesburg and I walked into the, my mentor's office and he said, hey, Gaurav, I didn't tell you our office is doing, not doing too well. And I said, dude, why did you call me? Are you crazy? And he said, no, 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 that doesn't matter. You know, all that means is you need to be a generalist. But the other thing is there's this newfangled thing coming in from Australia around mindset. And we're going to try it on ourselves because nothing has worked. I said, great, do it. Why are you telling me? And he said, no, no, because we want you to lead this effort. And I looked at him and like he was crazy. I said, I don't do touchy-feely stuff. That's for HR people to do. <laughs> And and we had a long argument, long argument. And finally, I gave him my killer argument. I told him, dude, I'm from India. And he said, what does that mean? I said, I know people who do this kind of stuff. They sit on top of mountains. They go, um, not going to do it. And as Mark said, I went kicking and screaming into this workshop. And I realized that there was so much I didn't know about, about things. And... Being the son of a physicist, I said, okay, I'm going to crack it in four months, and that's it. And the more I engaged with it, the more I realized I didn't know. And it became my life's passion. And I was lucky enough that helping people unlock their human potential, their true, true potential, their angel, is something that not only did I love, but it allowed me to help people connect with something so essential that I could make a career out of it. And so the last 22 years of my life has just been committed and dedicated to helping individuals, teams, and organizations realize their potential and realize that well-being and performance are so interrelated because it all ultimately comes down to meaning and being authentic with yourself. Your passion is inspiring. And I've only known you for about, what, an hour. Um, you seem like the nicest guy, one of the nicest guys I've ever met. So that, that right there, we should get into meditating, Kyle. Yeah, I, I'm sold. I'm, I'm, I'm sold. Yeah. Me too. Hey, I have one more topic or question, Kyle, before you cut me off. I know that's what you're trying to do. And Kyle didn't share the book with me. Um, he was He was keeping it for himself. So I don't know if you talked about this or not, but one big issue in the workplace right now is individual people's anxiety. Um, it's just a real hot topic, especially in HR. We're trying to help, you know, these individuals who come into our offices and help these teams. Do you feel like there's a correlation between fear and anxiety? Yeah. In fact, I, I think they're oftentimes one in the same or they're, they're very, very closely linked. So, you know, it, the story you have about your fear is you're perceiving some threat and that threat is sustained and it, you know, continually gets reinforced through your, your thought processes. Um, then yeah, it becomes, you know, a mood of anxiety, you know, low level, uh, you know, fear that just sits around all the time. And so, and that, you know, under just about every single circumstance will degrade a person's well-being, their health and well-being. And so I think it's a tremendously important topic that, that needs to be addressed in organizations. 
you know, we can talk about, you know, some ideas on, on how to do that, but I think it's, um, it is tough. And I do think just the general state of the world um, is intersecting with just a general stressful state in most organizations to begin with, and it's just making it worse. So I think there is a trend to uh, see increased anxiety in organizations these days. And, and Molly, I, I was shocked to read the statistic that uh, in America today, 50% of adults have experienced some kind of childhood trauma. And trauma is entrenched, deeply, deeply entrenched. And working with that kind of entrenched fear and anxiety is 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 real hard work. And you can't you can't just tell people don't be don't don't be anxious or don't have fear, right? You have to take people through a deeply experiential process for them to be able to unlock it. You you know, choice is deeply personal. And therefore the process cannot be imp- it, it just it's it's not a mathematical equation often people come to us and say just give me the formula just give me just give me the <laughs> right but, but yeah, mark likes that but <laughs> you know but it's it's an it's it's so deeply embedded in you that you have to experience your way out of it and that's what i would advise hr professionals is that it's not a system process solution it is a experiential solution and as much as you guys are amazing at your craft, you need to also become amazing facilitators of human beings because that is what is needed to address anxiety and fear. I couldn't agree more. And I think so often we just, you know, oh, you have an issue. Let's let's send you to our EAP and it just doesn't work. So mm-hmm. um, I think we definitely need to dive more into this. A hundred percent. And I think, you know, maybe to, to put a punctuation mark on it. You know, I think that that is it that, and who else is going to do that in an organization, if not human resources, right? You know, we, we need to take ownership of that. Um, we need to become experts in that, become educated and, and reflect that inwardly and make sure that we can help our organizations, uh, overcome that as well. So, just great stuff. We are readily coming up on the end of our time together, but I've got, I could talk for another three hours, but uh, we're just getting warmed I, up. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right. It's like, it's like, uh, one of the examples was, uh, you talked about a jazz band and you were talking about improv. Um, and I used to play jazz back in the day. So like that one was like, cool, but, but it's like, it's like the jazz band just got warmed up yeah, yeah. and we're like, now we're just starting to hit the right rhythm and the, the solo starting and now we got to finish. So, but we, better put part two on the books. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So shifting gears, we're going to go into uh, something we do with all of our guests called the rebel HR flash round. So uh, three questions uh, that we ask our listeners. So um, because we have two guests uh, here today, uh, I'm going to ask, each of you one question, and then I'll have you both answer the last question. How does that sound? I, I think we should give them all to Mark. Give them all to Mark. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, well, I'm finding out Mark probably already had them written down and, uh, and, and documented in a workflow before we started. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Just take a while, guys. All right. All right. I'll start with Mark. How's that? All right. Uh, question number one, what are you reading right now? I am reading uh, the Overstory. It's a it's a fiction book about you know just trees and nature. Um, it's really really fascinating. One thing I've haven't done as as much as read fiction because I've been so 
entrenched in reading a, a writing a business book. So the Overstory by Richard Powers, I believe, is is the author. Very uh, very deep uh, reflection on just the interconnectedness of everything. Awesome. All right, Gaurav, who should we be listening to? Who should we be listening to? You should be listening to me. No, <laughs> just <laughs> no. I I I. I think it, this is a crazy answer, but I, I would strongly encourage if people people really want to get some deep reflection going is is this gentleman called Swami Bodhananda, and he's based out of Kalamazoo, Michigan, and he has some great videos on YouTube about the essence of life and about what does it mean to live a wholehearted life. Swami, how do you... How do you say that? Bodhananda, which is B-O-D-H-A-N-A-D-A. And I've, I have heard him speak as well, and he is he is pretty amazing and very very thought-provoking. That is probably a first that we've had somebody um, like that recommended. So thank you for expanding our, our uh, thought process a little bit. All right, last question. I'll pitch this to both of you. How can our listeners connect with you? Yeah, really easy. Cocreationpartners.com. No dashes. Just one word, cocreationpartners.com. Um, and if you're interested in the, the book and some of these ideas, you can go to unfearbook.com as well to learn some more. Yeah, and I am really happy if people want to reach out to me on LinkedIn as well. I, I will respond yeah, likewise. because I, I do believe that conversation is the way to move forward. Absolutely. Um, and, and we will have all that information in the show notes. So open up your podcast player, click in, check out the book. Like I've said a couple of times, highly recommended reading. Um, just want to thank you both again for being so generous with your time and for, and for putting the book together. Um, really great work and, and I think really helpful for, for, for me and Molly. So thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks a lot, guys. Us. Take care. Thanks. All right. That does it for the Rebel HR podcast. Big thank you to our guests. Follow us on Facebook at Rebel HR Podcast, Twitter at Rebel HR Guy, or see our website at rebelhumanresources.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rebel HR Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any of the organizations that we represent. No animals were harmed during the filming of this podcast. Baby.